Well, good evening once again. How's everybody doing? Good, I hope. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 15? Revelation 15. Now, we took a while to get through 14. Uh, chapter 15 won't be that way. We should finish it tonight, but I make no promises. But if chapter 14 is the table of contents for chapters 16 through 19, then chapter 15, which is, by the way, the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, becomes a prelude to the final series of events that will complete the wrath of God and bring Jesus Christ back to the earth to establish his kingdom. Remember, we've looked at chapter 14, which encompasses uh, what's coming. In other words, it, um, as a preview of things to come. And now we're going to actually see these things come to pass starting in chapter 16. If you thought the worst was over, think again. The worst is yet to come. So far in the book, we have seen the seven seal judgments, followed by the seven trumpet judgments. And now we're about to see the final and most devastating judgments of all the seven Bowl judgments, also known as the seven bowls of God's wrath. Again, these will be the most horrific and uh, the worst judgments of them all. So verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now in this chapter, we have another sign in heaven, or at least John sees another sign in heaven, the seven angels with the seven last plagues. And uh, this is the third sign that uh, John has seen in Revelation. In chapter 12, verse 1, he saw the sign of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She's analogous to Israel. And then in chapter 12, verse 3, John saw another sign, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, seven crowns, a reference to Satan. And now in Revelation 15, verse 1, he sees a third sign, the sign of the seven angels having the seven last plagues, the seven last judgments actually of God. Now, the terms great and marvelous, don't let that throw you. It's not John's way of glorifying these judgments as, you know, awesome and wonderful in a good sense. They're first of all great because they're great in scope. Not every judgment affected the whole world all the time. But here we're going to see these judgments affect the entire planet in some way, shape, or form. So they're great. Remember what Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll do greater works than I've done. Well, you, greater than raising the dead? I mean, come on. I mean, you can't get much greater than that, much more spectacular than that, right? No, no, he meant greater in scope because the Holy Spirit would inhabit every believer across the face of the planet. We would all be the body of Christ spread out over the whole globe, and we would do greater works than Jesus did in scope, uh, just for the sheer number. And this is the idea here. These are going to be great judgments in scope. They're going to affect the whole world. And they're going to be marvelous when you think about it, they're going to be marvelous because when they're done, listen, the rebellion of man will finally be over. Hallelujah. The rebellion of man will finally and forever be over. 
paving the way for Jesus to return to establish his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness throughout the whole earth. The sign itself consists of seven angels who had, who had the seven last plagues. That's just a transliteration of the Greek, Greek the word plague. Uh, the word, we get our word plague. And um, we think of it as something like um, a pandemic or a virus or something that uh, a microscopic organism of some kind that infects a lot of people. But the Greek word literally means a blow or a wound. The same word was used in Revelation 13 verses 3 and 12 to describe the Antichrist, the beast's blow to the head that seems to have killed him. Now, I don't believe he's really dead because I don't believe Satan has the power of life and death. And here, after he looks dead, the whole world's going to think he's dead. Suddenly, he is resurrected. I believe it's a pseudo-resurrection. doesn't matter because Satan's a pretty good counterfeiter. Satan's a pretty good deceiver. And if he can get the world to think the Antichrist is dead and think that he has been literally raised from the dead, that's all he cares about, right? We, we believe that it's all a, a show, a facade. But it's the same Greek word for the blow to the Antichrist head that seems to, uh, to kill him, a wound, uh, a severe wound, and so on. Thus, the seven plagues, guys, I don't think are really diseases or epidemics, but deadly blows of God's wrath, listen, that will strike the world with a powerful killing force. Hold on to that. We'll explain a little bit more in a moment. I'm going to throw some things out to you that you maybe never thought of or who cares, okay? But there's a lot of people that read Revelation and come away with a lot of different ideas. So periodically I'll throw something out to counteract some of those misconceptions, all right? File it away until, you know, maybe a friend or somebody uh, engages you in a conversation about the Bible and maybe it'll come up and you'll have an answer, okay? But... Um, it's important to note that these are called the last plagues. Remember, read your Bible like a detective looking for clues, right? Every word counts. We believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the Word of God like we talked about Sunday. Every word has been put there by God. There are no exceptions, no accidents, right? No uh, extraneous verbiage. Every word, in fact, Jesus said every dot and, jot and tittle. We would say every dot of the I cross of the T is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So these seven plagues are called the last plague. Remember, these are the wrath of God, judgments. But they're called the last plagues, which implies that the preceding trumpet and seal judgments were also part of God's wrath. In other words, the fact that these are called the last plagues, the final blows of God's wrath, implies that there were, listen, previous blows of God's wrath that had been poured out before these last seven. You say, well, okay. Uh, but I, there's a reason I'm bringing this out, you see. Um, let me just say this. God's wrath extends to the entire seven-year tribulation period. Now, that's important, okay? Um, not, some believe, no, no, no. Uh, it just encompasses the, 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 the little part of time near the end of the seven-year seven tribulation period. no. God's wrath, God's judgments extend through the entire seven-year tribulation period beginning with the coming of the Antichrist. He's a judgment. Uh, just like 
uh, in Israel's day, they didn't want the Lord God reigning over them. They wanted a king, a tall, dark, handsome king. So God gave them Saul, but they really rejected God Almighty. The same idea is here. Uh, we have a king. His name is Jesus Christ. But the world doesn't want Jesus, do they? They want a, a, a political leader, much like Israel wanted a political leader in Saul. And so God gives them what they want. He is the first judgment of God of the tribulation period, the first wrath, okay? And again, I say that because those in the pre-wrath camp, those that believe that uh, in a pre-wrath rapture, they believe that, uh, as they study the Bible, that, uh, that uh, the world is going to go into the tribulation period past the midpoint. And sometime after the midpoint, the wrath of God gets poured out, and before the wrath gets poured out, we get taken up because we have not been appointed under wrath, right? But to obtain salvation. So they believe that the rapture happens sometime after the midpoint before the wrath of God is poured out. But I have maintained all through the study, the wrath of God is all the way through the seven-year tribulation period. It reaches a crescendo, yes, near the end because that paves the way for Jesus to return. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I believe that they're uh, in error uh, in that position. But uh, there's another point we need to understand. The fact that these are the last judgments indicates that the bulls come after, right? If something is last, then something has to precede it. And so these bulls are come after the seal and trumpet judgments, listen, in chronological order. In other words... All the judgments mentioned in the book of Revelation are sequential. Sequential. They don't happen simultaneously. Now, I throw that out. You may not even realize some people believe that. There are those that believe that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls all take place. They kind of uh, overlap each other and all take place at the same time. That's not true. The book of Revelation is a blessing because it is a chronological book. Now, when you read the prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's quite common to read something that's going to happen, and we know from our study of, of eschatology, of prophecy, this happens at this point, and then you read something that comes later in Jeremiah or Isaiah, and it really takes place before that, but in the prophecy it comes afterward. And you get confused. Well, what is the order? Revelation is a blessing because it gives you the order of how these events will play out. They are sequential. Just to throw that out there. So verse 1 again, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. Listen. For in them the wrath of God is what? Complete. Not in them the wrath of God will begin. Again. All right? The idea here is that for the length of the entire seven-year tribulation period, the wrath of God has been active, but these final seven bowl judgments will now, listen, fill up or complete the wrath of God, the judgments of God. Guys, as we have said this before, let me say it again. By this time, every person who, could, who can be salvaged out of the world has been salvaged or saved. And now there is no one left that is going to be saved. God knows, of course, the heart. God knows when the last person who is going to get saved during the tribulation period, comes to Christ. God knows that. 
And he knows that at this point, nobody is left that's going to get saved. So there's no reason for God to delay any longer pouring out his final and greatest judgments, his wrath, full strength. As we have talked about, full strength with the ideas unmixed with mercy. There's no reason to, to, to hold back on the judgments because you want to reach people in mercy. They've all been reached. All that's left is super hyper-hard-hearted hyper earth dwellers. They've had a lot of chances throughout the last... We're probably a good four or five years into the tribulation period by this time. Maybe a little more. I mean, God has given them all kinds of opportunities to repent and get saved. They've rejected him at every turn. And they have just hardened their hearts more and more. And so now that the last person who will get saved has, has gotten saved, uh, now these are very, as we're going to see, a quick judgments. All right? Quick judgments. Um, God is going to pour his wrath out full strength, unmixed with mercy on the remaining rebel, uh, rebels, uh, including the Antichrist and false prophet, by the way. You know, it's kind of interesting as we talk about God's wrath. The Greek word here for wrath is thumas, thumas. The same Greek word from which we get the word thermonuclear, thermonuclear. As we said in, or we saw in chapter 14, verse 10, there are two words for anger in the Greek, biblical Greek, thumas and orge. Orge, as we have pointed out already, is, a, is, the, slow bur excuse me, is the slow building of God's anger against sin over the centuries it's been taking place, right? Our God is long-suffering. He's waited 6,000 years uh, to really explode uh, against the people of this planet. You say, well, that's not really fair. I mean, what are all the folks that preceded the people? They get off? No, they don't, nobody gets off. They're going to stand before God and be judged. But as we have said before, it's interesting, the most people that have ever lived on planet Earth are living right now. The most people have, that have ever, we didn't hit 1 billion people until 18 something on planet Earth. Now we're pushing 8 billion. Most of the people that will ever live are alive right now. Most people have the great, these people have had the greatest opportunity to get saved. We've got telecommunications, we've got everyone can get their hands on a Bible. You can have multiple Bibles on your phone, uh, your computer, and so on. Uh, we have broadcasts where uh, good teachers are constantly teaching the Word of God. I mean, this is, a, this is a time for evangelism like never before in the history of mankind. And if people want to, to reject the truth, they have got to work hard because there's a lot of it out there. Sure, there's a lot of lies too, but there's a lot of truth, God's truth. So those people that wind up going to hell, they go, go of their own free will, not because God wants to send them. But... Again, orge, this Greek word for God's wrath, uh, represents the slow building of God's anger against sin, again, over the centuries, like the pressure building in a volcano. Think of it that way. Thumas is the actual erupting of that anger and judgment. Just so you have an idea what we're talking about. Verse 2, John says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, um, 
and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. This is in heaven now. This is a scene in heaven that John is seeing. And of course, those that overcame the Antichrist are believers. And here John sees them standing on a sea of glass, having harps of God in their hands. We have seen this sea once before in chapter 4. Turn there. Revelation chapter 4, we'll just pick it up in verse 1. Where John said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which, which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one that sat on the throne. Let me stop. I believe in chapter 4, verse 1, we have the rapture that's in view here. The rapture. And so the church is now caught up to heaven, right? And John is describing. John was an elder in the church. He's describing what he is seeing. In verse 6, as he talks about the throne of God, uh, he said, verse 6 says, he says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In chapter 4, uh, its description of a sea of glass like crystal speaks of something before the throne of God that reflects. What does it reflect? It reflects His holiness. How do we know it reflects His holiness? Because the four living creatures around the throne say day and night without rest, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? Who was and is and who is to come. So this, this, this sea, like crystal, crystal is clear, but it will reflect. Uh, and it's, here, many commentators believe it's reflecting the uh, holiness of God. But here we see, John sees it, uh, here in chapter 15, as a sea mingled with fire. And many believe this is a reference to divine judgment that proceeds from God's holiness. Uh, in chapter 14, John sees the believers from the tribulation. These would be tribulation uh, saints, martyrs, who died for their faith, who had overcome the beast. The beast, of course, again, is the Antichrist. Uh, they overcame the beast and his world system. In other words, they didn't take his mark nor worship his name. These are the people that uh, are talked about in chapter 12, verse 11, those that did not love their lives to the death. In other words, they were faithful to their Savior until the end. You might say they finished well, very well. But the idea is that they were, they were uh, able to accomplish so much for Jesus because um, they were faithful to him. Uh, they, didn't, they, they put their love and loyalty for Christ above their love of life. Now, this is the thing, I mean... I don't think we'll ever be as effective for the Lord as we could be if we don't have this heart, that we don't love the Lord more than we love our very life. Now you say, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know how, how I can ever be a martyr. Look, when the time comes, God gives grace. I'm not saying we're all going to be martyred. I'm just saying, though, if you're facing death for your faith, 
the Lord will give you grace at that moment. Remember what Jesus said? If they drag you before kings and magistrates, don't prepare beforehand what you're going to say because in that very hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. In that moment, you'll get the grace. And that's just how it works. People that have gone through extremely difficult trials and adversities, we look at that looking from the outside at them and go, I, I don't know if I could ever do that. Well, but, it was, but see, you weren't in that situation. When you're in the situation, God gives grace, right? And uh, supernatural strength. But these people were, were faithful to the end. They, they did not love their lives to the death. In other words, they, were, they didn't love their lives more than their love for Christ, even if it meant their life. Um, they were faithful. Since they didn't cooperate with the satanic system of the Antichrist, uh, they didn't take his vaccine, I mean his mark, uh, on their forehead or right hand, uh, they were unable to buy and sell, right? We read that in chapter 13, verse 17. I mean, think about it. <laughs> we might be moving there, uh, okay? Uh, might be a little preview for us of things to come. But because they wouldn't follow the Antichrist, they wouldn't allow him to put his mark on their foreheads or right hand, they couldn't buy or sell. They couldn't hold a job. They couldn't buy food and so on. They had to literally depend on God for their daily bread. Now, Jesus taught us to pray like that, didn't he? The disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, pray therefore in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he goes on to say, and give us this day our daily bread, right? We, we pray that as Americans, but we really don't mean it because we don't really have to trust in God at this point to give us our daily food. We have plenty of food, right? That may change. But these people literally will pray this prayer and mean it with all their hearts. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. When you are that dependent on God, it breeds an incredibly powerful walk. An incredibly powerful walk. And that's one of the reasons these folks are so dynamic and finish so well in their race for Christ. They have to depend on God for everything during this period. And it's going to be incredible. Um, now, of course, because of it, everyone is going to hate them. You, you, you don't want to take the Antichrist. They won't call him the Antichrist. They're going to call him the Messiah. Okay? I mean, you know, we know who he is. But that generation in the future will only see him as a savior, a Messiah-like figure. Well, probably not a Messiah-like figure, the Messiah. Uh, most of the people on the earth are still looking for a Messiah. Orthodox Jews, uh, Shiite Muslims, uh, looking for the Mahdi. Uh, you know, there, there are others looking, we're looking for the return of the true Messiah, right? But the idea is that um, there are going to be people at this, at this time who are going to look at these people that will not take the mark of the Antichrist, their savior, you must be wicked. You, you must be evil. And they're going to be persecuted like crazy. And a lot of that persecution will be physical persecution. You know, when you think somebody is wrong, you debate them. When you think they're evil, you want to destroy them. And this is how the devil has pushed us in, as a nation, uh, in the world really, in that direction. It used to be where uh, liberals and all, they would... Uh, they believed we were wrong as conservatives, and they would debate us. 
And we would debate that. But now the devil has brainwashed people into thinking, if you don't believe the way we believe, you're not just wrong, you're evil, uh, and you need to be put away or destroyed completely. You can imagine how these people will be persecuted. And many of them, listen, but not all of them are going to be martyred for their faith. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 13, talking about the generation of believers that are going to be persecuted by the Antichrist and his followers, but he who endures to the end shall be what? Saved. But not saved from sin. I mean, it's not, salvation of sin is not in view. It's saved from the Antichrist persecution. Why? Because the end will bring Jesus back, right? And he will take care of it and destroy these who are destroying his people. But, uh, but they're going to suffer a, quite a bit, quite a bit. Now, some of them will be put into prison. Some will be slain, Revelation 13, 10 tells us. But all of them, again, by God's grace, let's not make any mistake about it, by God's grace, will stay true to their Savior and will be victorious over the Antichrist. This is interesting, guys. This sea of glass, verse 2. In the Old Testament, there was something called the laver that stood outside the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle proper was the tent that they carried with them in the wilderness, and they would erect every time God, as the Shekinah glory, would stop. Whether it was by day, he'd be a pillar of cloud, by night, a pillar of fire. Uh, as the Shekinah moved through the wilderness, the, the camp of Israel would move. When the Shekinah glory stopped, they set up camp, right? And as they put up this tent-like structure outside the actual tent, which consisted of two compartments, the first compartment being the holy place, the second being the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Um, before you would enter into that, well, let me just put it this way. You would, you would enter this outer court, this outer area, right? I think it was uh, 75 feet wide by 150 foot long of these curtains that were set, set up on poles and, uh, and weighted platform, uh, plates that they would fit into in the sand. They would put all this stuff up, right? There was only one entrance into the area. This was the area where the people came to have their sins forgiven and fellowship with God restored or continued, okay? It all spoke of Christ, all right? And I'm getting ahead of myself, but as you walked into this enclosure, the first object you saw was a altar, the altar of sacrifice, also called the brazen altar. Why? Because it was made of bronze. Why bronze? Because bronze could be heated very hot. And they would sacrifice animals on this altar, sometimes uh, burning them completely after they were slaughtered as a burnt offering. You know Leviticus, right? Um, so they needed a metal that would be able to be heated very hot. After a pre the priest would sacrifice an animal on this brazen altar, the next thing behind it would set out right in front of the actual tabernacle proper was uh, a small birdbath looking bronze item it was called a laver again it looked like a, a, a large birdbath made of bronze the laver what was the point of the laver well the laver was where the priest would wash 
before he would enter then into the tabernacle. He had been covered with blood. You know, in the movies, these priests, if they've ever depicted this scene of the priests offering sacrifices there in the tabernacle, Jewish priest tabernacle, later temple, they've always got the beautiful white robes on, you know, and all this, be this beautiful priestly garments. No. Think of working in a slaughterhouse and how you'd look at the end of the day, right? This was how they looked. Uh, but the idea was now they had the blood of the sacrifice all over their hands, and they needed to go and wash in the laver, not just their hands but their face and so on, wash in the laver, and then they would be ceremonially clean, quote-unquote, to enter into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. Now here's something interesting I thought you'd, you'd be interested in. If you study the uh, blueprints in the Word, of the, you know, God gave Moses a set of blueprints when he went to Sinai. Gave him the Ten Commandments, but also a, a detailed set of blueprints from which he was to construct the tabernacle and all of its implements and furnishings and so on. If you study that, uh, and then later the temple, you can do the same study. God specified everything down to us, a fine detail. In other words, Everything had a measurement. God says, make it this long, this big, this wide. You know, everything was, was God specified divine, um, not divine dimensions, but he gave them divine instructions on how to build these things down to the smallest detail. The only thing God did not specify how big it was to be made was the lever. He left it up to his people to decide how big or how small they wanted to make it. You say, well, that's interesting. Why would God do that? That's a good question. Again, read your Bible like a detective, right? The reason was because the labor, listen, represented the Word of God. The Word of God. The whole thing pointed to Jesus. And after our sins are atoned for by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, that, that's what the altar of sacrifice represented, we then, as the priests of the new covenant, right? He's made us a kingdom of priests under the new covenant in the sense that we don't need a mediator to go to God for us, right? That was what the priesthood was all about in the Old Testament. They were not worthy to go directly into the presence of God. They needed a mediator. Well, who's the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus Christ. If you are saved, you're in Christ. Therefore, you are worthy to come directly into God's presence. Hebrews 4, come boldly. We are the priests of the new covenant. And as the priests of the new covenant, of course, you don't become a priest of the new covenant until you accept Christ. You've got to appropriate his death on the cross. That was the altar of sacrifice, right? Your sins are atoned for. And now as priests of the new covenant, we constantly wash... Where? In the water of the Word. Ephesians 5.26. What does that mean exactly? Look, I got the privilege of hanging around with you guys most of the time. Okay? Hanging around with Christians. Right? You guys got to go out to the world, many of you, to work. And you know, as hard as you try not to get defiled, it happens. What do I mean? Well, you know, the office gossip, you try to stay away from it, but, you know, right in the next cubicle, so they're going at it and talking, and, and it, it gets into your head, or uh, some 
dirty office joke. Hey, come here. Let me let me tell you this new joke. No, no, no. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to. Hear it. No, come on. Just you pick up junk, defilements throughout the day. What do you do? You come home, and you get the word out. Take a shower. You wash in the water of the word. See, of the word. The world's thinking gets into your head. And what you have to do is you have to displace it by thinking the thoughts of God. It's, it's, it's not about staying empty because we don't live in a vacuum. It's about making sure the right things fill you. Don't let the world fill you. Let the word of God and the Holy Spirit fill you, right? And that's what we need to do. Uh, before we enter the presence of God, we need to wash in the word. We need to start Again, thinking the thoughts of God, letting the Spirit of God uh, purge our thoughts of this junk we've picked up throughout the day. And this is important if we want to have practical fellowship with God maintained. As the priest, then after he washed in the labor, went into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, right? And guys, that's why God didn't specify how large to make the labor, because it represented the Word of God, and we decide how much of the word we are going to bathe in every day, how much of the word we're going to appropriate into our lives, right? I'll tell you what, if you open the word, read a couple of verses, run off to uh, work, um, a lot of the defilement is not going to be dealt with, you know? A little word, little cleansing. A lot of word, a lot of cleansing. And uh, the more you're, you remain clean before God, the more God can have fellowship with you. But uh, we decide. If the labor represents the word, God didn't specify how large they were to make it because he said, look, he knew what he was doing. This re represents my word, and it's up to each person to decide how much of the word they are going to use every day. It's up to you. You can make it as big or as little, God says, to Israel as you want to make the labor. Now, when Solomon came on the scene, you know this. Solomon never did anything small. So when he had the temple built, he made 10 lavers of bronze, okay? And set them on carts. I think they had like little oxen uh, with their horns and he set each of the bowls on, and they could wheel it around. That was pretty smart because they had to wheel it around, these things around at times because uh, they needed the area for something else. Or so. so, But he made 10 lavers and from what I was able to ascertain, they were about six feet in diameter, each one of them. And they held, I forgot how many baths of water, but you can check it out, okay? Um, but as we've already seen, guys, as we've already studied in previous studies, the tabernacle and later on the temple were models. They were models on earth made to represent the real temple of God in heaven. Now, this is very clear in, I think, Exodus 19, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and God gives him the Ten Commandments, but... He, he gives them these instructions. It doesn't say he came down on, with blueprints under his arm. But God gave him the instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And God said, make sure you make it exactly according to what I've told you. Because it represents the reality in heaven. It's going to represent on earth the reality that is in heaven, right? So, again... As I just said, before the priest could enter the holy place, he first had to wash in the laver, which represented the word of God. But now in Revelation 14, excuse me, Revelation uh, 4, um, 
I'm sorry, my notes are wrong. Revelation 15, what we're studying here, okay? In Revelation 15, the church, again made up of priests of the new covenant, are seen in heaven with our, because we're all going to be there, I include us too, we're going to be seen in heaven as John sees this group, uh, seen in heaven with our glorified bodies that, listen, don't sin anymore. So we don't technically have to wash the defilement of the world off of us every day by washing in the Word, right? That's all done. We're out of the world. We're in the presence of God. We have glorified bodies. We're going to sin no more, right? So then now we see in Revelation 15, the sea, well, in the Old Testament, the labor held water. We washed in it. But now we see the sea has turned solid. So what's going on here? Well, we talk about, Christians, we throw this phrase around. I'm standing on the word of God. What does that mean? Well, we're standing on the promises of God. We're trusting in the promises of God in his word. When we get to heaven, we're not going to trust in God's promises anymore. Why? Because they'll all be fulfilled. You don't trust in what you have, right? You don't trust in getting something you've already gotten. So now we see the labor, in a sense, the glassy sea, it's solid. They're not washing in the word. They're standing on the word in the sense that all the promises have come true. And they have become the foundation now for their relationship with God as now the saints stand on the word of God in the sense all the promises of God that he gave them, us, throughout the course of history. But... Um, it's interesting that um, God always is faithful to, faithful to fulfill his word. What we hope for today will someday be completely fulfilled. And uh, you know, the thing about it is we're not just building our, uh, our lives on, uh, for the earth on God's promises and faith. We're building our eternity uh, on God's promises, Right? Also, these people have harps of God. Now, the group that John is singling out right now are the tribulation saints, okay? And he sees them, verse 2, with harps of God in their hands. Uh, up until this point, the only people we saw holding harps were the 24 elders in chapter 5, verse 8. And as we said when we studied that passage, the 24 elders represent the church. Now we have the tribulation martyrs that are on the scene too. Now they are not the church, they are separate from the church, but they still worship God. I mean, we have different roles in the kingdom age, but we're all children of God. Uh, we're going to reign with the Lord, they're going to serve the Lord, but we all worship the Lord, right? Didn't Jesus say that it's the Father's desire to gather to himself True worshipers, right? John 4, verses 23 and 4. A true worshiper is someone that is redeemed and is worshiping God from a redeemed heart. And worship is more than just singing. We worship God with our lives, presenting our lives to him as, as a holy sacrifices, right? Uh, Paul said in Romans, what, 12, verse 1 and 2, that uh, we, uh, you know, we... Uh, lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice every day 
uh, present ourselves to God as living sacrifice that worships him. We're, we're giving up uh, our lives, our freedoms to serve our God. Okay, and uh, But these tribulation saints are every bit as much true worshipers as we are who uh, belong to the church. What, what is the church primarily? Well, those that God saved from those that God saved from Pentecost to the rapture. That's the church age. Those that get saved after the rapture are going to be tribulation saints. We're all going to be saved. We're all going to enjoy heaven. Um, and we're all going to be singing songs to God at one point in heaven. Um, in fact, they're going to be helping us to worship God. Uh, they got harps. They're going to be musicians. Uh, they're going to be helping out with the, the music of worship in heaven. You say, wait a minute, I can't play any instruments. I can't sing. How am I going to help worship God? You will then. All right? I don't care if you can't play chopsticks on a piano. Once you get to heaven and God sticks a piano in front of you, you'll be Beethoven. You know? You'll be Mozart. You know? We'll all have... An, and here's something about worship that you may have not have thought of. I, 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 maybe I mentioned it before, but in heaven, nothing will wear out. Nothing will get old of objects and of um, actions, really. I'm thinking of worship, right? Um Sometimes you look around in church and we're worshiping the Lord and somebody's yawning. Not this church, but some churches, right? Pastor Zek, some churches. Don't feel bad. They yawn for me too. So it's not just, you know, the worship. Can you imagine an environment where when you're in heaven, the first time you worship God in heaven, I mean, the uh, put it this way, the, the, the millionth, or a hundred millionth time, you worship God in heaven will be as exciting as the first time. Say, so how's that possible? I don't know. I just know that in heaven, all things are made new continually. All things are made new. So we never get bored. We never think, man, I wish I could stop playing this harp. <laughs> this is just a drag, you know. See, I don't understand how that works. Well, you will someday. I don't know how it works, for it, but you know, we will someday, right? <laughs> Anyways, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses. Now, these are the tribulation saints standing before the throne. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Some translations say King of the nations. Uh, both are true, okay? Verse 4, you, you shall not, excuse me, who shall not fear you? That's, that's target. Who shall not fear you? Okay, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. The host of martyrs, and of course, the comments here, these are tribulation saints in heaven. Of course, the church is already in heaven by this time, chapter 4. We, we get to heaven. But now as people are being martyred, they're appearing in heaven. And, you know, uh, 
Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of, King of the saints, King of the nations. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, right? And glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. This is no doubt looking forward to the kingdom. Because in chapter 19, Jesus now comes back from heaven with all of his saints to establish his kingdom. So these are looking forward to all nations coming to bow down before Jesus Christ in the kingdom age. And the Bible says that all nations will make a pilgrimage once a year uh, on the highway of holiness, wherever they are in the face of the earth, to Jerusalem to pay homage to the king. And that nation that does not do that, God will withhold rain from them. Now, when you're living off the land, that's a big deal, okay? Now, of course, the redeemed, there'd be no rebellion in our hearts ever again. But these are people that were born during the tribulation, uh, during the millennial kingdom, and they're still going to be rebels at that time. And they'll get a chance to get right with God or be sent to hell as well. I'll get ahead of myself, okay? Um, but these, these tribulation martyrs, especially right now, are standing on this glassy sea. They're singing two songs. Two songs. The song of Moses, which you can read about in Je uh, Exodus 15. That was the song that Israel sang when they came out of Egypt. And God parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground, and then the Egyptian army tried to follow them on dry ground. And as soon as they got... Halfway into the Red Sea there, God closed up the waters and they drowned. When they got to the other side, Israel did, they, they sang a song to God. And part of it went, you know, glory be to God, uh, the horse and riders thrown into the sea. You know, he, he protected us, right? So the song of Moses, right, when they came out of Egypt. Um, and then the song of the Lamb that we see right here in chapter 15 of Revelation. Guys, these are the first and last songs recorded in Scripture. The first and last songs recorded in Scripture, and both are songs of God's deliverance of His people, listen, by the blood of the Lamb. When Moses and the Israelites sang the song of Moses, they were looking back to the blood of a Lamb. Remember now, God had said that He was going to send the angel of death throughout the land of Egypt. This was the tenth and final plague. And that to be spared the judgment upon the firstborn, because the firstborn of every family was going to be killed. Why? It was targeted primarily at Pharaoh's son, his firstborn, because in Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was seen as a god, and his son was seen as a god, and people worshipped them as gods. And as we're going to see in chapter 16, all the plagues God poured out in Egypt were against their gods and will be against the gods that people worship during the tribulation period. But the word went out. Moses told his people, if you don't want your firstborn to die, you have to take a lamb and you have to kill it. All right, And uh, they had to have at least 10 people who would uh, benefit from this lamb. Then they would, of course, uh, eat it, but they would first kill it. And they had to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintel of their homes. Right, And if when the angel of death went through the land of Egypt, uh, when he saw the blood on the doorposts, uh, on the, on the uh, doorposts and lintel of the house, he would pass over that house and not bring judgment. That's what the, word, the feast of Passover was all about, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. 
and we've talked about this, it wasn't who was in the house. That wasn't the issue. If you were a Hebrew family and the head of the house, your dad, thought this was nothing but ridiculous nonsense and didn't kill the lamb, didn't put the blood in the doorpost and lentil of the house, the firstborn of the Hebrews in that house would be destroyed. If there was an Egyptian household that had a Hebrew servant girl and she had heard about this and she in faith killed the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and lentil of a house full of Egyptians, the angel of death would pass over that house. The issue was the blood. It wasn't how good quote-unquote, people were, right? That's the issue with salvation, isn't it? It doesn't matter who you are. You can be Jewish, Gentile. You can be American, uh, whatever. We all get to heaven the same way by the blood of the Lamb. And here we're talking about the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So I think we'll stop there. Um, and we'll pick it up next week uh, at this point. So I don't want to go any farther because there's a lot more I want to cover there. But um, we will pick it up next week uh, around verse 3, verse 4. So uh, may God give us grace. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us your word. And uh, Lord, thank you that you've given us the grace to read it, to know it enough to know we need the lamb, the blood of the lamb, to, to not on the doorpost and lintel of our houses, but put on, the, on, I guess, the doorpost and lintel of our hearts, if we can put it that way, because then we'll be saved and the wrath of God will pass over us. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.